I will feast at the table of the Lord. I will feast at the table of the Lord. I won't hunger anymore. Welcome to the table. You are listening to the Kingstown Communion podcast with lead pastor Michelle Matthews. The Kingstown Communion is a new United Methodist Church existing to gather people into communion with Jesus Christ through courageous conversation, creative community, and collaborating for the common good. We worship at Island Creek Elementary School, 7855 Morning View Lane, every Sunday at 10 a.m. For more information about upcoming events and opportunities to serve, visit our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Kingstown Communion. We're glad that you're listening along with us. If you live close by, we hope you'll join us for worship in person. And if you ever feel so inclined to help us by giving financially, you can do so on our website, kingstowncommunion.net. Sitting on a donkey's colt. 
His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written of him and had been done to him. So the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb, raised him from the dead, continued to testify. It was also because they heard that he had performed this sign that the crowd went to meet him. The Pharisees then said to one another, you see, you can do nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Then Pilate took Jesus and laid him flogged and had him flogged. And the soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head and they dressed him in a purple robe and they kept coming up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And striking him on the face and Pilate went out again and said to them, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no case against him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe and Pilate said to them, Here is the man. When the chief priests and the police saw him, they shouted, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him. I find no case against him. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has claimed to be the son of God. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. God, thank you for this week. We get to journey with you beginning today. And yeah, we've repeated it. Yeah, it's happening over and over and over again. It's happened over the entire season of Lent. It's happened over the course of one day. And it is happening over the course of this next week, God. But you know, really, we don't get it. And every year, doing this thing over and over again just reminds us of who you are and who you call us to be. Call us to the tomb and to the cross and to the garden and to the table and to where you teach, to where you turn over tables and into Jerusalem where we first meet you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When you entered service today, the door of Jesus' tomb was closed, and it leaves us with a quandary. Where is reality now? Jesus has shown us so many new things this week, so many true things throughout this week. How can that story suddenly be over? Is reality on this side of the tomb? In the Monday through Friday of this week, is that what reality is? Here we are with the debris, scattered coins we've got up here. We've got dis discarded swords and torn robes and ripped curtains and empty chalices now and broken hearts, too. And it looks pretty accurate, if somewhat bleak, a bleak picture of human reality. It's chaos. And that's the resonance of that thudding closure of the tomb on Saturday. We've successfully banished God. And we're left now to view the mess and to pick up the pieces of that mess. Or is there a different way to see reality? 
is in fact a more profound reality truly on the other side of that tomb, behind the stone, inside the tomb itself. There's some kind of force at work within that tomb that is deeper than our despair, more dynamic than all the disarray of life and the coins and the swords and the empty cups. The truth is, of course, they're both reality, right? They're two sides of one coin called what's really going on here this week. We are striving and failing to control ourselves, one another, and the world. It all seems like a mess. And at the same time, God is turning our clumsy failures into this beautiful kingdom, we say. This is what the story is about, turning death into life, sin into goodness, scarcity into abundance, sadness to joy. In the late 1960s, the second wave of the feminist movement started to use the phrase, the personal is political. What the phrase meant was that many of the choices that women made or were denied the opportunity to make were not simply personal choices, but together constituted the heart of the way politics needed to be reimagined or reconfigured in America. Politics, or the public, the public, was fundamentally tangled up in the personal. And the personal was what the tangle of the public, the politics, was all about. Issues of violence against women, of sexual health, of salary and working conditions, of the availability of affordable and high quality daycare, and of the removal of those impossible beauty standards from our lives were not private, personal questions. On the contrary, they were exactly what the public, what the politics was made of. And so feminists taught many other minority and underrepresented groups that the key to social change was to expose and manifest the public significance of the hidden and private personal struggles and sufferings of people. Such an insight has become commonplace among activists of all kinds today now, right? For example, in the environmental movement, we are now encouraged to recognize that the future the future well-being of the planet doesn't just lie in the international agreements that are made in Rio or Kyoto or, or Copenhagen, but just as much about our day-to-day -day decisions, right? About our decision to recycle our daily newspaper or take a bike ride to work or to purchase locally grown vegetables. The phrase, the personal is political, may have been invented in the 1960s, but the idea is not new. The idea is at the heart of the passion narrative that we've experienced so vividly together this morning and throughout the season of Lent. The power of this story is that this is both an account of the greatest political tragedy in history, the death of the Son of God, and a display of the most profound and intimate personal and interpersonal moments, betrayals, and interactions.
That's the whole point. It's never just about God, and it's never just about us. Jesus goes to the cross because we put him there, and because we put him there matters, but also because God somehow chose to let him go there, and because God chose to let him go there, that matters too. <coughs> and the agony of the story is not just that Jesus gives his life to save the whole world, but that he lays down his life for his friends. It's personal, and it's political, and it's political, and it's personal all at the same time. And you can never disentangle one from the other with, with the result that you can never say Jesus died for the whole world without saying and knowing in yourself at the very same time that he died for you, that he died for me. And you can never say he died for me without at the same time saying he died for the whole world. And so let's, let's look at this story for a second from this lens. Think about the scene when Judas kisses Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. That kiss is the most intimate, ironic form of betrayal there is. But that kiss is the most political thing Jesus does as well. G Judas, uh, Judas does as well. Judas uses his personal knowledge of Jesus his purposes and his whereabouts and turns that knowledge into political power by bringing a movement that challenged the Roman and Jewish status quo to an abrupt and violent end. And then think about what happens around that fire with Peter, Peter's personal need for warmth and his very human fear of being recognized and perhaps executed because because of knowing Jesus, become a political changing of sides. A servant girl says, you were with that Galilean, right? I saw you with him, and in the process makes the motley crew of disciples sound much more like a political party than some followers of Jesus. And when Peter denies it, he isn't just betraying his closest friend, he's putting his weight now behind the Roman and Herodian domination of Galilee and Jerusalem. It's personal and it's political. And then if we look what happens when Pontius Pilate sits on the judgment seat, this is apparently the most political moment in the entire story. Pilate asks if Jesus is the king of the Jews. He is in the habit of releasing one prisoner to the crowd. And these are... <laughs> These are patently political dimensions of the story, but suddenly it gets very personal for Pilate. Pilate's wife appears, and her message arrives at this most political moment with an extraordinarily personal touch. Dar darling, I can't sleep. I can't sleep. I've had this terrible dream, and it's been upsetting me all day long, darling. I've been dreaming about another man, and he's not you. And the man I've been dreaming about is the man standing half naked in front of you right now. Don't kill him, please. Whatever you do, don't kill him. And it makes you wonder, did Pilate have Jesus executed out of the politics of this crowd and their demand or out of jealousy for political reasons or for a personal one? One could take examples from every single scene of the drama, but just to note 
one more. When Jesus dies on the cross, there's an agonizing irony that when he calls out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some assume he's calling for Elijah and placing himself in the religious political history of Israel's prophets, while others assume he's thirsty and take his cry in more of a personal way. Moments later, though, the centurion looks on Jesus' dead body and concludes, this man was God's son, which sounds like this personal statement of faith, this affirmation of faith. But when one realizes this was a Roman soldier and his emperor claimed the title himself of son of God, it becomes evident that it's, just, it's not just a personal statement, it's also a political one. In all of these and a host of other ways, the passion narrative we've just heard and seen wraps our personal lives around our political existence and wraps our political existence around our personal lives. This is what the gospel does from beginning to end. Earlier this week, um, I posted an article on Facebook, not about um, the politicians highlighted in this article, but more to say, um, I am so glad to see the conversation of, of inclusivity of the LGBTQ community become a conversation of faith. That we have people all, it's not, it's not one party against another, it's now this theological conversation that's happening in the news, which I just think is fascinating and wonderful. It's theological discourse, that's what it's for, where, where our politics and our faith, they kind of, this personal faith, our, how we align with Jesus in our own personal life also aligns with how we see the world around us. And someone commented on my post saying, the problem I have with this is that yeah, this conversation needs to happen in, in the personal. It needs to happen in, in our personal faith, in our personal one-on-one -on -one relationships with one another at church. And I, I just can't get around the conversation happening out in the public. And, and I thought, I have no idea how to reply to you. I have no idea what gospel you're reading. Every single sentence in the Passion narrative, and indeed in the whole of the Gospels, is a political statement. But at the same time, every single sentence is a personal call to transformation and a response to this. And the Gospel writers have no notion of a difference between the two for them. There was no difference for them. The personal and the political were not separate for them, and neither can we assume it was for Jesus either. We can't separate the two. To be a Christian means to follow Jesus' path to the cross in the hope of sharing with him in his resurrection. And the Passion narrative gives us every indication that if we follow Jesus, we can expect some kind of public acclaim but eventual rejection. We can be weighed down like the disciples by the most human needs like, like sleepiness and, and shivering in the cold by a fire, these personal things, confused ambition over 30 pieces of silver, but we can also be called to the most trans 
transcendent gestures of the public, like Simon carrying Jesus' cross and Joseph stepping out of the shadows to offer a tomb when no one else would. We can expect our closest friends to betray us with a kiss and deny they ever knew us, and yet we can expect our sworn enemy also, like the soldier at the foot of the cross, to be moved by our suffering and come to share our faith. What we can't do is try to seal off parts of our lives. We can't say this, this part is personal and, and, and this part is public and deny any, any public significance to what we do and how we live. We can't say that part is political and there, thereby this part over here is personal. The difference between the personal and political is meaningless to God. There is meaningless. God sees it all. God knows it all. God wants it all. And Jesus asks, who do you eat with? What groceries do you buy? Who do you sit next to in church? Who don't you sit next to in church? What do you choose to read throughout the week? For whom do you pray throughout the week? These intense personal things constitute some of the most politically significant statements of our life. Who do you know that came to this country in search of a better job? Who do you know that has had an unexpected and unplanned pregnancy? Who do you know whose daddy died in a war no one can remember the need for? These are supposed to be political questions, but issues are only generalizations about people. The political is the personal. And that is what Palm Sunday is about. That's what we get on Palm Sunday. In Jesus, God makes public his commitment to our personal salvation. Why did Jesus enter in the most public display ever? Jesus makes public God's commitment to our personal salvation. God shows his passion for us in a crowd, not behind the tomb, but in the crowd. The Holy Week story vividly displays the costs and the rewards of him doing this very thing, of taking the personal public. The question is, do we have the same passion for God as Jesus has for us in making this big fuss in the public? In the first Holy Week, Peter, Judas, Simon of Cyrene, Mary Magdalene, Joseph of Arimathea discovered that their most personal friendships, choices, and loves turned out to be the most political and dynamic dimensions of their lives. We, are we prepared this Holy Week to make the same discovery? And if the answer to that question is yes, then you'll be entering Holy Week in the spirit in the that the Gospels offer it to you. That this God made very public 
this God's personal desire for you to be saved. This is the personal and political good news of this week. God gets fundamentally and comprehensively take, tangled up in our lives, and we get tangled up in the whole world of God's saving love for all creation. And these things cannot be separated. Would you pray with me? God, it's so easy to just care about our ourselves. So easy to just care about what we need, what our personal faith needs. And the miracle of this story, the, the, the thing you point us to, God, is that you showed up this week, the very first moment, entering into that city, into a crowd of people with all their own questions and all their own concerns and all their own personal failings and all their desires to be saved and all, and all of that together, you showed up in the public you made this grand entrance because from day one, from day one, this was not about me and my heart and my salvation. It was this, for the salvation of the whole world. God, we, we work through Holy Week so many times looking for that, that really moving moment for us. That moving moment where we get, Jesus died for me. God, I pray that this week we might be moved even more profoundly to see that you died for all. For all the world. That, that, that should feel in us. It should feel like it takes up residence inside of us. It should feel big. It should feel like, like we're exploding when we, when we sense the goodness of God. Turn us away from our own personal, you died for me, and toward this idea that you died for all the world, the person we can't stand and the person we love dearly. We offer to you those people in our lives whose, whose, personal, whose personal lives are just complete wrecks. And everything feels like it's falling apart around them and, and they can't possibly see anyone anywhere else because life is just so heavy personally. We also offer to you, God, the people who are so tied up in the public and what politician might be running where and have neglected to see that, that the public is, ex exists in order that we might be personally transformed. These two things cannot be separated from each other, and you knew that. They were not separate to you. 
We pray that prayer together now that you taught us to pray that took the personal and made it public and took the public and made it personal. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Table.